the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are very, very excited always to have with us from the West Coast Senior Hoover Institution fellow author of the book, The Case for Trump, Victor Davis Hansen. Professor Hansen, welcome back to America First. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's always, always a pleasure. Um, I, I think it's... It's annoying, it's a distraction, but it is one of the key stories out there or issues of the day. And that's the, the should he, shouldn't he issue of the press briefings after the presidents uh, are being accused of saying inject the disinfectant straight into your bloodstream and, and other absurd things by the mainstream media. Uh, many have recommended that they're not really press briefings anymore, at least they're not used by the mainstream media as such, and the president should cut back. I've always said we should return to what was done three years ago, which is have members of the regional press ask questions. They used to Skype in regional newspapers, websites. I love that undercutting of the so-called elite media. Where does Professor Victor Davis Hansen stand? Should there be daily, multi-hour COVID briefings by the president or not? Um, not not at all. I, I wrote something yesterday about that at National View yes. in the corner that the press conferences should be no more than 20 or 30 minutes. Trump comes out gives a two-minute summary of all the different data that he has to coordinate. Pence comes in for a minute or two, and then they have five minutes from the medical team, Fauci and Burks at the most, and then maybe even economic news from Mnuchin or chairman of the economic advisors, and maybe a military leader, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, say, well, here's what we're looking at with China and the South China Sea or Iran, and then finish up with uh, Barr reminding us that we have a constitution, First and Second Amendment, and then questions for five minutes directed, and then he wraps it up. And as I wrote, and I agree with you entirely, that we need people from Des Moines, we need people from Bakersfield, we need people from Maine. We need. Uh, we, we live in a, an era now of locked in with Zoom and Skype and such things, so there's no reason we have to have this small little coterie of Washington reporters that play gotcha and you said this and didn't you say this when there's a lot of questions out there that other reporters might ask, yes. right? such as why do we put people in rest, uh, patients that are infected in rest homes or when will the lockdown end in this state or that state or what's the status of these new antibody tests? So we're not getting any of those questions. We're just, playing this game where Trump gets drawn into a repartee with, you know, Jim Costa or somebody. Right. In this case, it could be uh, an instance of less is more. We're talk to, talking to Victor Davis Hansen. Follow him right now, VD Hansen on Twitter, the author of The Case for Trump. And in, uh, in the whole response to this national emergency, 
that has killed the same amount of people who died in years of combat in Southeast Asia. What What is your sense right now? When our founding fathers created the republic, there was this potential um, attitude towards D.C. that wash federal government should be really be an irrelevance, except for certain things like foreign policy or interstate trade. It really, you know, gridlock is a good thing because we don't want another King George. When it comes to responding to this kind of eventuality, um, have we hit the right balance between the feds and the governors, or have you been disturbed by how many governors see this as a time to clamp down on the citizens in their states? I think everybody's worried that we have these renegade governors that are abusing the Constitution under the guise of national security. And I think, though, the federal system is self-correcting, and by that I mean once a Texas goes, to back, goes back and it's got the lowest deaths per million population of any big states, much better than even Germany abroad. So once a state like Texas goes back, or uh, Utah, or some of these other states, Oklahoma, and they're, and they're viable, we're going to see even blue states feel, you know, I, I've got to either go back or be left out, and that will help. I think what we're missing is it's really two viruses. There's a virus in the Connecticut, New Jersey commute corridor into New York City and the greater New York City, and then that's about half the cases and half the deaths in the United States. I mean, right. there's everybody else. If you look at it in that way, then it makes no sense to lock down, you know, at least 40 of these states. There's just no – here in California, 40 million people, and, and we have one-tenth of the deaths that New York does. Uh, one-twelfth, I think it is, and we have twice the population. Why in the world would we want to follow the uh, protocols of Andrew Cuomo? They, they were not applicable here, and they did, and to be frank, they haven't worked too well there. And And – in what we've seen in places like New York and California and elsewhere is this ratcheting up in, in, in terms of, of undermining civil liberties, freedom of movement. Do you expect that, Professor Hansen, to, to spring back, to bounce back to some kind of equilibrium? Or is this like a ratcheting wrench that after we get the economy back online, there's still going to be this, this great expectation of big government is good for America? Well, I think what's happening is that we have the official protocols and already people being Americans are doing what they think is wise. And yes. a lot. And here out, I'm out in rural California, but I can tell you that the economy in this very shutdown state is starting to come back, but come back in the sense of civil disobedience. People are just not – they've made a decision that given the data, especially from Stanford and USC – if this lethality rate is comparable to the flu, they're not going to destroy their livelihood over that. They're just not going to do it. And they're, not, and they're going back to the degree they can and then get supplies. And uh, so, you know, when you have a state where 44 people out of a million die uh, from the flu, and, you know, we've had average about six or seven deaths a day of the 800 that die every day in California, and most of them have been comorbidity patients and rest homes. So it just doesn't make any sense. And people understand that. So the subtext of this whole crisis is if you're a bi-coastal person that's plugged into a pretty much guaranteed income, at least for a while, then you're not so worried about uh, getting back in time. And if you don't like Donald Trump, that's just 
an added benefit the longer that we're out. That's that's what really is, is not is no longer a subtext. In the last Sebastian, it's it's overt now. Yes, it's it's out there. It's it's totally declared. In the last minute we have with you in this segment, Professor, how much of what we're seeing is the result of a culture at least amongst the elite talking heads, that will not countenance risk, that there is a zero-risk attitude? A lot of it is, and it's people who have uh, high incomes. They're urban, urban people. They're not used to knowing where their water comes from, their sewage come, goes, their yeah. food comes from, and they feel they, they have a right or a divine, uh, a, a divine right to control all of the uh, locus, focus, whatever term we use of their landscape, and they're going to live to be 90 and die in their sleep. And life doesn't work that way. But I think they, at this point, they can control it, and they can't. It's the snowflake culture. I'm Sebastian Gorka, back with the author of The Case for Trump, Dr. Professor Victor Davis Hansen. Portions of America First are sponsored by Moral Compass LLC's No Safe Spaces movie. We are talking to Victor Davis Hanson of the Stanford University's Hoover Institution, author of one of the best books on my old boss, President Trump. It's The Case for Trump. Follow him at victorhanson.com and VD Hanson on Twitter and also his writings, especially at americangreatnessamgreatness.com. But also he's written a piece, uh, Professor, you've written a piece at uh, uh, National Review Online on a, the broader issue of China and America's panoply of threats. Um, what happens if we manage to get some of the 27, 28 million Americans who've lost their jobs back to work, if we see some kind of economic recovery? D- does, does everything snap back to normal in terms of geopolitics, geostrategy? Or, or specifically, how does all of this change uh, the Sino-U.S. relations or God willing, a second Trump administration's policies towards Beijing. Oh, I think it's going to change. I think we were already in that trajectory anyway before of decoupling, but I think we're going to learn it's going to be much more insidious and difficult because our universities were misdirected. They were not turning out the engineers, mathematicians, physicists, biologists of the number that quality that we needed to run our technology, especially at the middle level. And a lot of Chinese students were filling that gap. And I think that had some security implications. And also those people who were going back and then expropriating patents and copyrights and accept. I think that's going to change, but it's going to be difficult. We're going to try to bring back these key industries. That's going to be difficult, but we have to do it. And then I think we're going to have to work close, more closely with countries like Taiwan and South Korea and Japan and Australia, because I think they feel more threatened than they ever have. And I think China's attitude is this was a downside for us, and we our brand is tarnished, but we're never going to let a crisis go to waste. So we might as well move on Hong Kong, uh, flex our muscles in the South China Sea, bully Taiwan while we're at it, because we've been hurt anyway, and now we can just continue what we wanted to do when we were worried about our reputation and the way it's been liberating for them. In, in 
In some um, writings, you've heard people, David Goldman and others, say that to respond to this this weakness, our uh, 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 reliance on, on China, for example, on strategic assets, we have to have an equivalent to the Moon Program under Kennedy. Can can we can you countenance? Uh, can you imagine such a a pro government initiative that would help us get back to independence on key issues, or does it have to be really a, a private sector push? What where do we stand in the twenty first century in the century in the balance between private initiatives and government initiatives? Well, I think we can we can do both. I think one of the things we forget is when we say public project like the space program, which is about a trillion dollars, and the uh, interstate highway program, which is about a half a trillion in today's dollars. They were government programs, but not in the sense of government today. They outsource and they encourage private enterprise. Even World War II, Biden was criticizing Trump about the War Production Board, but that was basically turning Henry Kaiser, Henry Ford, William Knutson loose and allowing them to make a profit and to be get innovative private enterprise people. So I think the point is we can coordinate. Government has to coordinate, but it should be primarily private enterprise that get tax incentives, et cetera, for bringing, you know, businesses back to the United States, tax incentives to direct certain technologies in a particular way without the government actually running it. And uh, I, I think that'll that'll start to happen because, there's been kind of a consensus across the political spectrum now. It's kind of strange. We don't agree on anything, but people do agree, most Americans now, whether whatever their political allegiance, that China cannot be trusted and that it's seeking a trajectory of world hegemony and it's willing to do almost anything to achieve it. And whether it's human rights or religious tolerance or the Uyghurs or the way they treat Hong Kong or the way they doctor ingredients, or they pollute dog food, whatever your your interest with China is, it's increasingly going to be negative. There's not much to recommend in the current relationship. Not long after the Berlin blockade, Americans woke up to hear the signal of an artificial satellite being beamed down from space. That was our Sputnik moment. That's when we really woke up to the existential threat posed by a Soviet Union that could get into space before we did. The Chinese Wuhan coronavirus has to be our Sputnik moment when it comes to the threat that is China. We've been talking to Professor Victor Davis Hansen. Follow him at victorhansen.com and VD Hansen on Twitter. And if you want to know the president and the effect of this iconoclast on the body politic and strategy by the the professor's book, The Case for Trump. Thank you, Professor. This is David Davenport of the Hoover Institution for townhall.com. One silver lining in the dark coronavirus cloud is the revival of federalism, the old-fashioned idea that not every issue has to be decided in Washington. While most every policy issue from education to healthcare and beyond has traveled a one-way road from state and local governments to Washington, the crisis rediscovered a leadership role for state and local government. Early on, we learned that states like New York, California, and Washington needed to address the crisis more quickly, and their governors began to lead. In California, there were higher concentrations in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, so mayors and county commissioners took action. Important work was done well before there was a national consensus, and these laboratories of experimentation informed larger policies. This is exactly how the founders saw our government working. Hooray for the revival of federalism. I'm David Davenport. 
The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.